This is Blood Bank, a podcast where hospital workers share a story from an experience in medicine that has stayed with them, and then they tell us why. I'm Amanda Rubano, and I'm a medical student at the University of Rochester. Today, we'll hear a story from Dr. David Coronis about a young boy who is dying of leukemia. This is a story about telling the truth, about omitting the truth, and deciding what's best. Dr. Coronis is a pediatric hematologist and oncologist and a pediatric palliative care physician, and he feels very grateful to do the work he does. So let me share with you the story of William. Uh, He was this very cute little boy. I think he was about six, and he had Down syndrome, and kids with Down syndrome are prone to getting malignancies, and he had ALL. ALL is acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and it is the most common childhood malignancy. He had a relapse, and we were hoping to get him back into remission so that he could get some experimental therapy. Uh, But instead of getting better and instead of getting into remission, he got sicker and sicker. And we tried to manage him on the floor, but things weren't working out, and he had to go to the ICU. And when he went to the ICU, he continued to get sicker. He did not need to be intubated, but he did need BiPAP. BiPAP is a way to give ventilation to a child who can't breathe fully on their own with supplemental oxygen, not by putting a tube in, but by putting a tight-fitting mask over the child's face and forcing the air in. And it's a great way to avoid intubation. He was on that and stable but slowly sliding. And with each day that passed, we we gradually realized this was probably the leukemia. There was no way we're going to be able to prove it. And there was no way, despite any therapy we gave him, that we were going to get him better. Now, his parents, they were just wonderful, loving people. Uh, They embraced this child. They loved him. He was their life. They were very steeped in religion. Their faith just ran really deep. And they really were convinced William was going to be healed by God. And we did not do anything to dissuade them from that. We did tell them we were worried. Um, We hoped that that's what's in God's plan. But we just didn't know. They saw us as working through God. Uh, They also realized that if... William didn't survive, that for some reason they couldn't understand. Maybe that was God's plan. But they also thought that there would be a miracle. They really, really did not want him to die in the hospital. And I think they were going through what a lot of parents do, which is that you kind of down deep know the reality, and it's just too painful to give voice to it. But at the same time, they just could not let go of hope. And there's so many families and people who do that. I think we all do that. We hold on to hope and know where things are going at the same time. So finally, we reached a point where we felt that William was likely to die in the next day or two. You know, we told the parents that we were concerned he wasn't going to make it and that if they wanted to bring him home so that he could be uh, in their in their little home before he died or before a miracle happened, we would help them to do that. We also told them that whether he stayed 
we thought the outcome would be the same. And so they agreed, um, never acknowledging that he was dying, but I think knowing. So it, there was just this mad scramble. It's not easy to transport a critically ill child who's getting literally life support. So we had all, it took about 24 hours, but we got all this put together. And then we had him all strapped in the transport stretcher. And as he's wheeling, the transport nurse wheels him out the door. She says, I can't pick up a pulse. And he looks a little dusky. And like at that moment in time, uh, I just remember flashing through my mind. Do I tell the family this? And do has he died? And do we just keep him here? Or do we take him home, which is just the one last thing that we could give them? And, you know, the BiPAP machine pumps air into you, so it's not like you could... It's not like if he quit breathing, you would know, because it's pumping air into him. His chest is rising with each breath. So I said, let's go. So they got him in the ambulance, and I rode right behind them, and there was a nursing team waiting for him at home. And we're like halfway there, and the nurse texted me that he was not looking good. He was looking duskier. And she said, should I stop? Uh, by the side of the road, and I said, no, I mean, we're committed. And then the rest of the trip, I kept thinking, oh, shit, what are we going to do when we get there? Like, how, how, how does this, how is this going to play out? You know, he's probably died. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but he's probably died. And do I just, do we just pretend like he hasn't? Um, do we pronounce him as soon as we get there? I, I just wasn't sure. And we finally, you know, they lived out in the country. It's like an hour away. And it, it was just really soothing. It was, it was um, summer. Uh, the buildings fell away. It was just lush greenery. And they lived in this really just cozy double-wide trailer. And when we got there, I still wasn't sure what we were going to do, but we got there. There must have been like 20 or 30 family members lined up on each side of the door ready to greet him. And I went over and I saw him, and he, his skin was mottled. He felt he was warm but a little cooler, and I'm pretty sure he had died. I thought, well, we have, I mean, we're here. We, we just have to bring him inside. And so that's what we did. We brought him in, and we gave them all time to gather around and to see him. And I decided I was going to just give them time, and then I was going to say, I'm, I'm concerned that maybe he's not breathing on his own anymore, and I don't feel a pulse, and that, that he might have died, uh, and... You know, if on the one hand, it felt like such a charade, I, like I was acting, and it didn't feel good because I kind of felt like I was lying. On the other hand, I felt like if I just came totally clean, I would just ruin this moment forever for them. So I just kind of kept going, and we laid him on the bed, 
it was it was just this really warm scene. There was just so much love in there, and there was sadness, but there was love. And she uh, finally, I as I mentioned, I said, I'm, I'm concerned that maybe he's not breathing uh, on his own. Uh, let me. I'd like to check his heart rate. So I checked. There was no heartbeat. Just looked at them and said, he's passed. And they gathered around. They loved him. And I think they had their moment. And I felt like I was less than truthful to give them their moment, uh, which was a hard thing. But I feel like in retrospect, there weren't any good there was no choice that was perfect here. Um, and I've hashed and rehashed it many times since, and I, I don't have regrets about the way it all turned out. What's the moment you remember most when you retell this story? The moment I remember most vividly that had the biggest impact on everything that happened was when that nurse had him half in the, half in the ICU room and half out in a stretcher, and when she said, I can't pick up a pulse. And I feel like thinking fast and making decisions in a hurry is not my forte. So, But I had to make a decision right then and there. And I think the moment I said, let's go home, that committed me to a less than truthful path. And what's the moment that you think of that reassures you that you made the right decision? I mean, it might have been several moments, but it was when we brought him into the the warmth of this double-wide trailer, set him on the bed that they had lovingly made and waited for him to be on. And I realized he, he came home. He came home. There wasn't much we could give them in, the, in all of this tragedy, but he was home. And I felt like other people might look at this and go, what? You know, this is the era of open disclosure about every little thing. It really felt like this was the right thing to do. One of the most striking pieces of this story to me is the procession of people at the doors of this trailer. There are only a couple of times in life where I can think a procession forms, um, a wedding and a funeral, a time to honor the start of something and the end of another. And we don't form processions unless we recognize this turning point. It makes me think about how natural that process of grieving is and what would have been the collateral damage should you have taken that opportunity away from them? No, I, I know. And I know what you mean about a procession. You know, I think the lesson is that truth and total open disclosure is not always the right thing to do. That's a hard thing to say. I think that should be our mantra, to be open and honest with our patients. And I think that we should acknowledge, though, that every once in a while, there might come a time 
where truth does harm and where lack of truth does less harm. And, you know, that's a very slippery slope, and you just have to be very careful. And even as I say this, I feel a little uncomfortable, but total openness, no matter what, that it's not always the right thing for our patients. I think it points to the fact that discretion is necessary with every circumstance, and we live in a gray world. I completely agree. It is a gray world. That's what makes it so hard. You know, I should also add that if you are going to cross that line, you should do your damnedest to think really hard about it and also seek counsel. That unilateral decision-making to withhold truth is, uh, is a pretty profound thing. I actually did seek counsel. I'm, I'm glad that ride was a long one. Uh, because I had time to call some people and ask, say, here's the situation. I thank you so much for the honesty of this story. I think it's a hard one to tell, but I think it's really necessary as people move forward in life with rules that are written for a black and white world. I think hearing something that we don't often hear reminds us that when we feel like we failed, maybe we didn't. Maybe we just failed the rules that are written for us. I completely agree. That was Dr. David Coronas sharing with us a moment from his past. I'm Amanda Rubano, and you're listening to Blood Bank. <laughs>